chapter 4, verse 31, it says, In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, who told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Last couple of days, I've had an opportunity to uh, go to a couple of games, to a uh, Bronco game, and then I went to a, a Nuggets game. And I remember being with the person, and I, I said to the person next to me, I said, can you believe that that guy gets paid $10 million a year for, for playing a child's game? And then, of course, the Nuggets dancers came out. And I looked at them dancing, and I go, can you believe that that's their job? And it annoys my, my sons and my wife, because every once in a while, the, you know, some bizarre situation will be on TV. And I'll go, can you believe that that's their job? I was doing a little research on unusual jobs, and I came across a few. Raven Master. It's your job to, to feed and train ravens. Ironing logo transfers on mortuary gowns. That's somebody's job. Pet psychologist. Slash professional jester. No, I'm just kidding. They're two, two separate jobs. Henry VIII reenactor. Can you imagine that's your job? Celluloid shaver. Do you know what a celluloid shaver is? You know how some people, very rich people, they have custom-made golf clubs? And it's your job to trim the golf club down to specific standards. How about this one? Odor analyzer. Now, here's your job. You work for a deodorant company. And your job, you guessed it, it's to see if the deodorant is working. Yeah. Can you imagine that's your job? Most jobs require effort and exertion. The opposite of labor is rest, leisure. Recreation, diversion, amusement, entertainment. Unless, of course, 
entertainment, amusement, diversion, recreation, or leisure is your job. But as Christians, we're to labor for the Lord. We work for the Lord. Each and every one of you, at least most of you, have some kind of a job. It's your job to go to work. It's your job to go to school. We as Christians are to focus on the will of God for our life and the work of God. And with the will of God and the work of God, God comes a a renewed passion, if you will, a a renewed sense of priority, a, a fresh sense of urgency as we think about what it is that God is calling us to do. We all have physical and material needs. We, we know that we need food, clothing, and shelter. So how do you balance the physical and the spiritual concern? Jesus reminds the disciples of the spiritual task at hand. They have a job to do. It's to know the will of God, and it's to know the work of God. And then he presents an unbelievable benefits package that's quite literally hard to ignore. We begin with spiritual labor and physical labor. Look what it it says again in verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, remember the context. It's John chapter 4. Jesus and the disciples have left the Galilee. They're headed for Judea. They've walked all day. They find themselves tired, hungry. The disciples have left to try and find food. Jesus sits down at a well. He offers a Samaritan woman living water. She rushes to the town and tells about a man who tells her all about her life, about how this person is the Messiah. And now the disciples are returning from the town and they say, Rabbi, eat, verse 32. But he said to them, I have food of which you don't know. The conversation follows the normal pattern in John's gospel. Someone asks Jesus something. Jesus responds. And then Jesus is misunderstood. The disciples are are encouraged to eat. They are focused and concerned about about meeting a physical need. and, And Jesus responds that he has food or nourishment which is unknown to the disciples. And the disciples take the statement at face value and they wonder, what happened? Where did Jesus get... Get the, the food. Did the Samaritan lunch wagon come by while they were gone? Did he turn dirt into trail mix? Did he turn stones into bread? You'll remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he turned stone. He was, he was asked to turn stones into bread. But remember Jesus' response. Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right away, we understand that there's a physical issue and there's a spiritual issue. And slowly, Jesus is going to unfold what he's talking about until his disciples get it. Now, have you ever been so busy that you forgot to eat? That typically doesn't happen to Italian people. I don't want to suggest to you that you're more spiritual if you don't eat. Or that the disciples did something wrong in urging Jesus to eat. Because few things are more frustrating for a wife or a mother when she plans and prepares and serves a meal only to hear her husband or child say, I'm not hungry. In some cultures, the way that you actually greet one another in their language isn't you simply say hello. You ask the question, have you eaten anything? This is why Italian people are so ineffective as soldiers. 
Because in Italian boot camp, you learn how to give up in seven different languages. And you say, Are you hungry? And let's see. And no, it's a bad idea. Fight bad. Fighting is she's bad. Eating her up to eat. My, my grandmother, she's not, she'll be 97 in October. To this day, if you go to her house, she'll go, You hungry? Hey, you sit down, I'll give you something to eat, huh? Hey, it's not a good. You're not eating the right. We have to eat. We have to sleep. But Jesus wants us to cultivate a passion for the things of God, the will of God. He's, he's trying to turn their attention to the priority and the urgency that will cause us to suspend business as usual and consider the kingdom of God. What will it take for you to temporarily set aside your physical needs, your emotional needs, your carnal and material needs? At what point will you set them aside in order to begin to pray about the will of God and the work of God for you? The driving passion, the singular motivation of Jesus was to do his father's will and work. Think about what Jesus is saying. The believer who is willing to set aside Physical comfort for a season will grow and will be nourished by the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, teaching on this verse, uses a kind of blunt force trauma towards the people who actually took the time to listen to what he had to say. Spurgeon wrote years ago and and he spoke, quote, Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and the needy all around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritual dyspeptics. That's his way of saying ill. Be idle, careless, With nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan, to murmur, to look within until you're ready to die of despair? I wish I would have been there. I wish I could have heard Spurgeon preach that sermon. Because the message is timeless. You understand what he's saying. Are you so selfish? Are you so preoccupied with your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your needs? It's the universal cure. Care for others. Serve others. Minister to others. And guess what? It's spiritual sustenance. Do you study God's word? Good. Do you pray? Good. Do you devote yourself to the things of God? Good. All of those things are good. But is there one person? Is there one? Is there one single person in the whole wide world that you care more for than you do yourself? 
Are you willing to set aside your needs, your feelings, and do something for someone else? In John chapter 4, verse 33, look what it says. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Again, their focus is still on the physical and the material. But what Jesus is going to try to do is to shift their outlook, their vision and their thinking in a new direction. Jesus says in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What is God's will? What is God's work? The source of spiritual sustenance for Jesus was to do his father's will and finish his father's work. Remember what we've already learned in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. The father sent the son. You'll remember the most famous verse of all in John 3.16. You remember it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Father sent Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, it says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I think that that's important because when the word of God, the message of God is inside of your heart, then the will and the work of God will be on your mouth. You need both. The word of God in order to do the will of God. And at the core of Jesus' ministry was submission to his Father's will. And of course, Jesus is the only one ever. Jesus is the only one ever to submit to God in all things at all times. You may submit sometimes. But I've never met a single person who submits at all times. Jesus is the one who exercised perfect and a profound obedience to the will of God the Father. Jesus was sent by God, and God's will for Christ was to finish God's work. And you know what God's work was? It was to live the life that you could never live. It was to die on the cross for your sins. As a matter of fact, Jesus died on the cross, and when he said, it is finished, he was making reference to God's work. The word translated to finish is the Greek word teleo. You know that word because we have a word in our own language called telescope. Remember what a telescope does? It makes something far away near. It makes something small large. And in this particular instance, it means to accomplish. It means to bring to completion or perfection or a mature end. The ministering to the Samaritan woman, imparting living water, was more satisfying than mere water or man-made Gatorade. And so Jesus begins the work, the work of redemption and reconciliation, the work of hope, the message of forgiveness. And so the Lord Jesus in the world of the first century, where prejudice was rampant in the Jewish world, where a Samaritan was isolated, at best a Samaritan was ignored, at worst they were villain and discriminated against. They were opposed. They were cheated. They were denied. And it would have been easy for Jesus to cave into the cultural prejudice. Jesus could have pretended that the woman never came to the well. He could have pretended that he didn't see her. He could have pretended that he never looked into her heart. But it would have just been a pretense. 
just like he won't pretend that he can't see you. That he can't see your heart. He knows exactly what's going on inside of you. He could have refused to acknowledge her existence. But he couldn't. He wouldn't. Charles Swindoll writes, and I quote, He could have ignored her, but he didn't do that. He looked at her. He read her circumstances, felt the need of her heart. He engaged her, treating her not as a problem to be solved, but as one who has something to offer. You'll remember in chapter 4, verse 7, when Jesus sat down, he said, a woman of Samaria Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. He didn't see her as a hopeless loser, a broken person who had absolutely nothing to offer. Even in her lost, estranged, and broken circumstances, she still had something to offer. He listened to her. He didn't argue with her. He didn't shame her. He wasn't out to win a debate. He wanted to win her soul. That's what it says in verses 26 and 36. Isn't that the Father's work? Didn't Jesus come to seek and to save that which is lost? You may have asked and wondered and speculated in your own life. What will it take for me to have a genuine, godly, fulfilling life? And I'm going to tell you, it isn't a secret. It's the most obvious thing that has ever been written. And it's absolute submission to the divine will. When Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will, it implies that He knew it and He's willing to do it. And once you know God's will, once you know God's plan, once you're willing to embrace what God has for you, then you, in a conscious, deliberate, thoughtful way, in partnership with God's Holy Spirit, empowering you, filling you, using you. It is God's will that you be saved. It's it's not God's will that you be lost. It's God's will that you walk in forgiveness. It's God's will that you be submitted to Him. It's God's will that you cultivate the gifts and callings that He's placed on your life. What are you doing with your life? Are you pursuing empty, temporal pleasures, entertainment, games, DVDs, food in excess, worldly amusements, fame, success? At what point will the diversion lead to a willingness and humility to say, God, I'm sick and tired and I want to know what your will is and I want to do it. Doing the will of God results in peace with God and also the peace of God. Rebelling against God, resisting God, disobeying God will result in a profound absence of peace. Is there a profound absence of peace in your life? Do you find yourself getting up and saying, I just want to be happy. Is that so wrong? Is it wrong for me to want to be happy? I'm here to tell you, it's not wrong for you to want to be happy. But you will never. You will never, you will never be happy in disobedience to God and rebellion against God. 
Submission and obedience produces joy. Joy produces happiness. The moment that you decide to do what God would have you to do, guess what? A fountain of living water wells up, an energizing power, and the Holy Spirit begins to flood your being. God wants to empower you to do His will and to know His will. That is the plan of God. When we go our own way, when we do our own will, when we go our own way and we do our own will, there's no power available to you. God is not going to bless and empower your will in your way. But he will empower his will in his way. Jesus is preparing his disciples for an object lesson for their mission. It's the harvest field of which Jesus has just reaped a token, a kind of first fruit in the form of the Samaritan woman. We labor because the harvest is ripe. Look at verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. You know, there was a a man who traveled in the Middle East over 150 years ago, and he went through all of the sites of the Holy Land that he could figure from his Bible. And again, for those of you who have an opportunity to go with me, we're going to go places and, and see things that will make your Bible come alive. And in this valley, in this valley with Mount Gerizim on one side and, and Mount Ebal on the other and, and Nablus, which is, is where the, the, the well of Jacob is, this weary traveler sat down at the ancient site of the well. And this is one of those beautiful green valleys where it's actually you're able to harvest grain. And he saw a group of Bedouins, Arabs, who were coming towards him in in their flowing white robes. and And it looked almost like a white field. The Jews have a saying, four months, he says, and the harvest will come. Jesus is quoting a proverb. By the way, the Jews divided a year into six divisions, not like us. In in our world, we have winter, spring, summer. Yeah. Winter, spring, summer. Remember the song? Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you have to do is call, and I'll be there. Yes, I will. No, just that's another message. We divide the world, winter, spring, summer, and fall. The, The Jews divide it into six divisions. Each one lasting two months. There was seed time, winter, spring, harvest, summer, and then what they called the season of extreme heat. And so in their way of divvying up the year, there were four months. Hence the saying, if you sow the seed, you must wait at least four months before you can hope to reap the harvest. The area of Samaria and Sychar, again, was famous for its grain. Israel in general, and the Levant in particular, is rocky hill country. There, there isn't a whole lot of places where you can actually grow amber fields of grain. And so Jesus causes them to look out and say, yes, we've been talking about the physical, but now we're talking about the spiritual. And I want you to understand something that God, God wants you to see differently. Lift up your eyes, Jesus says, lift up your eyes. Look now, the field of souls, the harvest of souls is ripe right now. We begin with a vision. 
When he says, lift up your eyes, it really is that simple. Open up your eyes and look around you. Do you realize that any hope of missions begins with a vision? And by vision, I don't mean the ability to just simply see in front of you. And I, you, you, and I certainly don't mean it by a Christian euphemism. Usually among Christians, when we say, what is your vision? It's our way of saying, well, how do you plan to accomplish this? But when I use the term vision, I mean the ability to see God in the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And in seeing God, we begin to see how God can accomplish the great task. Because when you lift up your eyes and you look at the world, you look at your world. You look at your family. You look at your community. You look at your state. You look at your nation. You look at your continent. You look at your world. It can become overwhelming. But it has to begin at least in your line of vision. Let me ask you a question. How far can you see? How far are you willing to look? We begin with vision, but we continue with identification. He says, look at the fields. The world, by the way, is the field. The world contains the fields of tribes and languages and people groups. We identify by name and location and, and the needs of, of the unreached people groups. They are ripe for harvest. And the goal of missions, the goal of missions must be evangelism. It must be presenting the gospel. It must be so that souls can be saved, so that people can be Brought to a place where they can experience forgiveness and hope and reconciliation with God. We as a church want to pray and what we want you to do is to pray with us as we focus on specific unreached people groups. How many are there, by the way? Well, according to Adopt the People Clearinghouse, we can't be sure. But the best estimates place the figure at about 6,600. By the way, an unreached people group has been defined as a tribal or language group where there's no viable indigenous church movement with sufficient strength and resources and commitment to sustain a continued church growth. That's why last year... We came to you and, and we reminded you of a, of, a, of, a, of a people group that have never, ever known, never, ever had their language translated into the Bible or the Bible translated into their language. And guess what? We gave a year ago. The translation is complete. And guess what? They've already started Bible studies using the translation that you provided. And we're going to find out more about that. You need to understand something. When Jesus sees the world, he doesn't just see places. He sees faces. For him, the world isn't a rocky region or uh, an ocean region or this region or that region. We don't have to wait. The time to reap the harvest is now. The world is becoming one gigantic neighborhood. Distant is, distance is becoming less and less significant. And each believer is becoming responsible for the people in their line of vision. Is the only person you see your husband or your wife, your children? Are the only people you see the people you work with? Then look to the people in your line of vision. How far can you see? Dave Bryant in his book, The Hope at Hand, writes, and I quote, 
There's an explosion of spiritual harvest around the world, such as the church has never seen before. Here are some of the highlights that he writes about. Every day across the world, another 74,000 people are being added to the body of Christ. The country Jordan recently joined an admirable group of countries, including Panama, Croatia, Papua New Guinea, and 24 other countries who have mandated Bible teaching in their public schools. Can you imagine? You have to go to Croatia or Jordan or Papua New Guinea, but open up a Bible in the public school and all hell breaks loose. In the late 1980s in England, less than 8% of the population attended church and an average of one church closed every week. Yet by the late 90s, one new church started each week. Virtually every denomination in the body of Christ in England committed to planting 20,000 new churches and seeing 20% of the population attending a Bible teaching church. Argentine believers multiplied by 800% over a 10-year period. Can you believe that? An average of 1,000 people a day die of AIDS in the small country of Zambia. But do you know what's happening there? Believers preach at funerals for AIDS victims. In that culture and society, a funeral will last in their ceremonial culture as long as three days. It will involve thousands of people. But guess what? Over two dozen churches have been planted in there alone. Isn't that wild? God, by the ministry of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, has supernaturally turned on a switch, a thirst for God to know Him, a sense of sin, a sense of conviction, a falling short of meeting needs. We live in a world where people are empty and lonely. They have a profound lack of purpose in their life. Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. If not, the harvest remains in the fields. The harvest ripens. The harvest rots. And then it's lost forever. We've got to do it. We've got to talk about Jesus. And what are the benefits? Should we even talk about the benefits? Jesus does. By the way, have you ever had a job ever where you said, I don't care what you pay me. I don't care what the benefits are. I just thank God that I have a job. Most people, no matter how desperate they are, they're going to ask about the benefits. And Jesus gives them. He doesn't ignore them. Look what it says. We labor because the reward is great. In verse 36, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice. For in this the saying is true. One sows and another reaps in verse 37. In verse 38, I sent you to reap that for that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. I want to remind you that Jesus mentions six specific or particular rewards or benefits in this section. Number one, the laborer will receive wages. That's what it says. And he who reaps receives wages. This may come as a shock to you, but God promises to pay the believer. And I want you to know that God pays well. 
and the wages are already there. They're already available. You don't have to raise support. The Lord God isn't experiencing an economic downturn. He isn't experiencing runaway inflation. There are no uncertain and volatile markets as far as God is concerned. He has exactly what is needed in order for us to accomplish the task. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus says, And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So the laborer receives wages. Oh, it's not the kind that you pay taxes on. It isn't the kind that you can put away in your 401k or your 403b. But it is a kind of a wage that is sent to a specific place where you get to embrace it throughout all of eternity. And number two, the laborer gathers. Look what it says. Gathers fruit unto eternal life. Whatever this is, it lasts forever. Think about it. Think carefully about what Jesus is saying. The laborer is conducting business of supreme importance, of lasting value. If you ever wanted to do something that has lasting, eternal value, then present Jesus Christ to a dying person who is lost. See the work of God and the gospel of Jesus transform a sinner into a saint. You may bake bread and it lasts for a day. You may sell a car and it may have an amazing warranty. It might be 10 years and 100,000 miles. You may sell a home and it may last 30 years. But guess what? When you communicate the love of God to a person who has never heard it, you are planting or plowing. And another person may come and water. And another person may come and reap. To a person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've done something of lasting value. You remember what Jesus said in John 3.16 and John 3.36. If you just turn the page, look what it says in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And number three, the laborer experiences overwhelming joy as he or she partners with other laborers. Look what it says. He who sows, he who reaps. They're not in competition. There isn't supposed to be envy or conflict. We're working together in our Father's field. How different is that in real life? Hey, this is my territory. I'm the one who planted this church here. I am the one who gives eternal life here. Oh, aren't there enough sinners to go around? In Luke chapter 15, verses 6 and 7, this is what Jesus says. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who needed no repentance. And number four, the the laborer has a specific task. Remember what it says? One person sows, another person reaps. 
Your specific task doesn't matter. It is God's work, whether you plow, whether you sow, whether you reap, and whatever task you get assigned, you rejoice. No single person can do it all. The task is too great. The need is too great. The harvest is, the harvest is too full. Even if every human being were a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie, even if we had an army of Billy Grahams and Greg Lauries, we, we couldn't get the job done. We each and every one of us have to do our part. And remember what it says, if the sower fails to sow, then the reaper cannot reap. If you fail to plow, then the other person can't plant. And if you fail to plant, then another person can't reap. What are you doing? To plow. What are you doing to plant? What are you doing to reap hope? The water. The kernel of faith. How many souls have been left to rot on the vine? Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-8. through 8. I planted. Apollos watered. But it was God who gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one, look what it says, will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And number five, the laborer has the privilege of being selected and chosen and sent by the Lord Jesus himself. Look again in verse 38. I sent you to reap. Remember what I said to you earlier? John chapter 1, John chapter 2, John chapter 3. Who sent Jesus? The Father sent Jesus. Who sends you? The Son. I send you to reap that for which you have not labored. I don't, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to lead a person to Christ. I know you don't. Well, I don't even deserve to dig the dirt. I know. I don't deserve to plant the seed. I know. I certainly don't deserve to harvest the crop. I know. You know, every once in a while I get to travel all over the world. And I usually will bring a bag. I have one bag that's usually full of seed. And I have one bag that's empty. The bag that's full of seed is to sow. The bag that is empty is to reap. In East Africa, in India, there is a harvest taking place of unprecedented proportion. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. What are you asking the Father? Are you asking for his will? Are you asking him to reveal the work? Remember, we know that it's God's will that none perish, but all come to everlasting life. We know that it is God's will that he forgave you and that he saved you and he gifted you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes, For we are God's fellow servants. You are God's field. 
You are God's building according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for there is no other foundation that anyone can lay other than that which is laid, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I keep pointing you to Jesus. That's why I keep reminding you that it is Christ. It is Jesus who came from heaven. It is Jesus who was born of a virgin. It was Jesus who died. It was Jesus who rose from the dead. It's Jesus who imparted grace. We labor because God's results follow. Look what it says in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word which the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Do you remember who this woman is? This is the woman with five failed relationships who's shacking up with another guy who goes into the city and says, I've met the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one who is forgiving sin and reconciling us to the Father. Did you ever have a conversation like that with anyone? I'm a Christian. God saved me. I remember when I got saved. My family said, you're a Christian. Oh, this week you're a Christian. Last week you were a witch. Before that you were an atheist. And before that you were an agnostic. And before that you were a pagan. And before that you were this. Think about it. Agnosticism, paganism, rheumatism. No, uh, I was too young. I, I actually didn't have all those physical problems. But here's the point. The lady goes into the city. She tells them the truth about what Jesus has done. He told me all that I ever did. He had supernatural insight into my circumstances in my life. And people, people may hear your testimony and they may respond. It says in verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, that is Jesus, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. It's one thing for a person to hear your testimony. It's another thing for a person to invite Jesus and to hear the words of Jesus and to listen to the testimony of Jesus and to listen to the testimony of the Savior of the world. Remember, Jesus comes to seek and to save that which is lost. And in verse 41, it says, and many more, many more believed because of his own word. You can believe what I say or you can ignore what I say. You can believe what Jesus says or you can ignore what he says. But look what happens to these Samaritans. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. Isn't that an amazing testimony? This is Jesus. He's the Savior. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's also the Savior of the Samaritans. And He will be the Savior of the, of the Gentiles. He will be the Savior of the nations. Saved from what and for what? We're saved from sin to worship God. And remember what we've already learned in John chapter 4. Worship is internal it is spiritual and it is true remember god seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth now we believe worship is spiritual 
It's not directed by the five senses, rather by the spiritual nature within the person. Now the center of worship isn't Jerusalem. It isn't Mount Gerizim. The the center of worship isn't an altar. It's not even a pulpit. And it's certainly not a preacher, but a person. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the center of worship. Jesus is the truth. We ourselves heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. (laughs) The religious rabbi, Nicodemus, needed a fresh start. He needed to be born again. The Samaritan woman, seeking water to slack her thirst, found living water. A sinner's greatest need is the free gift of salvation in Jesus. The greatest need of the one who is saved To understand the will of God and to understand the work of God. It's okay for you to ask. The best person to ask what the will of God and what the work of God is you. You ask him, you say, Lord, what is your will for my life and what is the work that you've purposed for me? Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples at the end of his ministry in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God sent Jesus. Jesus sent his disciples. You know what's interesting? In Romans chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says this interesting statement. He says, and how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. The world of Christianity isn't divided into those who go and those who stay. The world of Christianity is divided to those who go and those who send those who go. Each and every one of us have an opportunity. For us to send people, we have to provide moral support and logistics support and financial support and prayer support and communication support. And when they, when, when they return, reentry support. But part of what I wanted to do was give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on and what we plan to do. By the way, <coughs> the missions plans for, for Calvary South Denver include this. Beginning next month in February, we're going to have monthly missions meetings. That, that's going to be starting in February. And for those who really have a heart to learn more and to pray for missions and for you to begin to pray and think about your role and your relationship and be being a person who reaches out. So some of our local outreach includes um, going to Denver Rescue Mission every four to six weeks. Get signed up the next time. We also have short-term missions trips planned. We plan on taking several of them. Mary, Robin, and Rita are going to Russia in February to minister to the local women. And remember what we've already talked about in Russia. They're going to go and they're going to provide teas and Bible studies. 
most of you don't remember, but when in 1980, when the former Soviet Union collapsed, Bill Bright came to Chuck Smith, my pastor, and said, we have an unprecedented opportunity. The former Soviet Union is collapsing. God is opening doors. We need church planters who can go into circumstances where they have no visible means of support and start churches. And we thought about Calvary Chapel. <laughs> and guess what? Two decades later, God has planted churches in Odessa, Belarus, and Russia. We've got so much happening. In July, Fernando in the high school ministry is going back to Puerto Vallarta to minister to the kids in the slums there. Yes, it's a tourist destination, but right past the beach is a major slum, and our high school group puts on a vacation Bible school there. In September, Mike, along with 516 and any other adults who want to go, are going to be going to Hungary and Croatia, hopefully with a stop in Rome, and we're going to be talking more about that. We also have short-term trips to South Dakota to serve Native Americans on the reservations there. And again, part of our challenge as a church we, of support as of this month, we have Dwayne and Amy Dokes. They have three kids and a fourth on the way. They're from Calvary Chapel in Marietta, and they're serving with Urban Ministries. Urban stands for United to Reach and Bless Afflicted Neighborhoods. That's a ministry to the five-point areas of, in downtown Denver. Bill and Terry Hansberger of Haven Ministries are an outreach for those who are involved in the cults and the occult and false religions. We live in an unprecedented time where we don't hardly have to go anywhere. The whole world is coming to us. And in that coming to us, we have an unprecedented opportunity to reach them with the gospel. The Lodi family, Rich and Kristen and the kids who are serving in the Gospel for Asia Home Office in Carrollton, Texas, are serving the needs of over 13,000 native missionaries that Gospel for Asia has planted in India and other countries in the 1040 window. It's been my great privilege to partner with KP for the last 15 years as we planted churches in the southern part of India, in the northern part of India, in Sri Lanka to the south, even reaching out to the island groups around the, the, the ocean. Do you realize that the church planting of Gospel for Asia might be one of the most significant church planting um, circumstances in the history of the church. And Lotsi and, 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 and Carrie um, Nemeth with two daughters, they live in, in Vukovar in Croatia, um, where Lacey pastors the Agape Evangelical Church. Vukovar is a city where the whole war in, in ex-Yugoslavia started. And Lotsi is a, is a Serbian pastoring a Croatian church. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, a Serbian pastoring a Croatian church. But if I said the ex-head of the Ku Klux Klan is pastoring the church in downtown Compton. You would have some sort of an idea of just how intense that is. Both Lotsi and Kerry were saved as a result of Calvary Chapel church plants in Yugoslavia and Hungary. Some of our future plans in the works were partnering with Rocky Mountain Calvary from the Springs to establish a church in Chihuahua, Mexico, as well as to reach into a region called the Copper Canyon, which is four hours away, to the Mexican Indians who live there. There's, we're going to give you more information in the, in, the, in the multiple trips ahead. And we're also thinking about exploring the idea of planting a church in Argentina. We're working on a plan to strategically focus on Central, South America, and Central and Eastern Europe and India. We can see in front of us.
But I suspect that God is calling us to look just a little bit further. Every day I'm on the radio. Two hours a day, Monday through Friday. I used to think that just Christians would listen to the show. But guess what? Atheists and agnostics are listening to the show. Unbelievers are listening to the show. People who hate me and who hate you are listening to the show. I got a call on Friday and this person basically accused me of being an unthinking idiot. And he told me to stop talking about Jesus. And then he questioned my sexual orientation. And then he hung up. And I said, after he hung up, I hope you're still listening. Because I'm not going to stop talking to you about Jesus. Because it's Jesus who came and lived the life that you could never live. It was Jesus who loves you. It's Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. It's Jesus who gives you even even any kind of chance whatsoever to have a right relationship with God. It's Jesus who's willing to forgive you. It's Jesus who's working on you. It's Jesus that you're so angry with. But he loves you. And if you'll accept him as your Lord and Savior, you can have eternal life. Guess what I won't do? I won't stop talking about Jesus. Jesus saved me. You may or may not believe my testimony. But I hope, I hope and pray that you've been listening to Jesus himself. You've been listening to his words. You've been listening to his message. You've been listening to his promises. But we've got so much to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Expand our vision. Identify where we need to go. Create within us a heart that begins to pray about what we should do as individuals and what we should do as a church and what we should do as a fellowship. To look up and see the harvest. And Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. I pray, Lord... For those who find themselves in a dark and an empty place, alone and hurt. Lord, I pray that you would begin to cause them to turn outside of themselves. And to look to someone that they can love and someone that they can pray for and someone that they can minister to. And Lord, for the Christian... who hasn't spent a lot of time praying about the will of God and the work of God. Lord, I pray that he or she would begin to do that right now. Lord, I know that you're willing to speak. I know that you're willing to tell them this is the will that I have for you. This is my will for you and this is my work for you. Lord, give us the strength to do it. I know that you will. You don't strengthen our plans, our will, but you strengthen your plans and your will. And so again, Father, we commit these things to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay tuned. We're just getting started. Let's stand. The music fades. All is stripped away. And I simply come. 
longing just to bring something that's a word that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It is all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Would you like to know the will of God and the work of God for your life? Ask Him. Ask Him. If you would like us to pray with you and ask with you, we would be more than happy to do that. Ask Him. There's going to be men and women who are available to pray with you after the service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance and reveal to you His will, His work. In Jesus' name, amen. Go get them.